0: Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry, in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello and welcome again to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. I'm your host, Dimitri, and today we had a deep dive with a farmer. Um, His name is Tom Wall, and he has Red Fern Farm in Iowa, USA. We wanted to interview Tom because of his very special farm where he has been integrating a variety of crops such as chestnuts, pow pows, and different other nuts um, together in a commercial way. Um, in a farm where he is letting his customers pick the fruit themselves in something that we call you pick, and therefore getting the full benefit of um, the full economic benefit of direct selling. So we delve into the technical aspects of agroforestry and how he plants his trees, how he integrates them, some of his experience in the past 25 years um, and the tree interactions, etc. Um, and we also delve into the more business and commercial side because it's a really interesting model. And as he says, that enables him his main cost to be mowing his land, which is something that a lot of farmers aspire to. Uh, a level of, of input costs that a lot of, of farmers aspire to. So it was a really interesting interview. Again, his experience really comes out, and you can see somebody that's been working in his context for 25-plus years. So it's something we always learn a lot from, and we hope that you will as much as, as we did. Hi, Tom, and welcome on the podcast. Uh, thank you. I thought we could maybe get started by, you know, with a quick introduction of your farm. What do you produce? Where are you located? On what scale do you work?
1: Okay. The number of things we produce is, make a list so long that we really don't have time to cover it all. Um uh, somewhere around 75 species of fruit, nut, and berry plants. Um, <clears throat> but our main ones... The the ones that are commercial are uh, chestnut, heartnut, persimmon, pawpaw, uh, Asian pear, and hopefully soon to be honeyberry. And, <clears throat> the whole farm is 86 acres, but uh, a large ma- majority of that is steep, rugged, wild forest. And there's only about 12 or 13 acres. That are being managed uh, for tree crops right now and the, and the rest is suited to uh, firewood and hunting and hiking and bird watching and but but not not for crop production or, or even livestock really
0: okay maybe you could tell us a bit as well about where you're located what's your climate like um you know give a bit of so we can understand a bit of the context you're in also what's your soil like
1: okay uh we're located in southeast iowa in the central united states uh our usda climate zone is 5b which means uh in an average winter the temperature gets down to around minus 15 fahrenheit and I can't recall what that is in Celsius, but we have seen it get as cold as minus 37 Fahrenheit, which is uh, almost e- equal to minus 40 Celsius. So it, it can get very cold here. Uh, it can also get very hot. Uh, I've seen many days over 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh <clears throat> Our soils are some of the very best in the world for growing temperate hardwood trees. Um, Deep, fertile, moist, but well-drained soils with a a good balance of uh, sand silt and clay particles. Uh, Very high site index for uh, upland oaks, Uh, in fact, uh, white oak trees grow fast here, whereas everywhere else in the world, they're they're a slow-growing tree. We are not certified organic, uh, and mm-hmm. we do use herbicide when we're getting trees first established. But once once the trees are established, we don't use any uh, chemicals uh, at all. Uh, I I like to grow crops that don't require any kind of care whatsoever once they're established. Um, Now that said, we do grow things that uh, uh, are hard to grow that way, including apples. I I like apples. uh, And I grow them not commercially, but I grow them just because I like them and those are hard to grow without chemicals. But everything else, including all of our commercial crops, a chestnut, heartnut, persimmon, pawpaw, Asian pears, and honeyberries um, require virtually no care whatsoever um, in order to grow them, at least at our
0: Not location. even some pruning, for example?
1: No. Uh, the, uh, the chestnut trees require
0: mm.
1: pruning up high enough so that we can get under the trees with a mower, but uh, we'd we mm. actually don't need to actually do any pruning to do that. We grow them in five-foot-tall tree shelters or grow tubes, and that uh, prevents side branches from growing up to five feet, and then that's high, high enough that we don't need to do any pruning afterwards. Um, there are a few trees like uh, pawpaws and persimmons that we will do a little bit of pruning just to keep the trees from getting too tall. Or cut the tops out of the trees mm-hmm. uh, with the pawpaws I might have to do that once or twice during the trees lifetime uh, uh, just to keep the fruit within reach of the ground because I, I don't I don't like spraying and I don't like climbing ladders so I want to be able to just go out and harvest <laughs> when the time comes and not have to worry about the trees otherwise
0: so that's uh seems like quite an ideal to reach in terms of having trees that needs little care and just you know harvesting and selling yeah, and so I think in this interview we'll delve a bit into that at some point to understand how you make that work in practice, and I know you've got a really interesting um, um, commercial strategy as well, right? You do you pick
1: correct so that eliminates almost all the work for me because the customers do the harvesting. Uh, I do have to mow the the vegetation short under nut trees before harvest, but that's really the only thing that I absolutely have to do in order f- to make this work. Besides, manage the customers.
0: Mm, okay, and so do you have do you choose special varieties of your different commercial crops in order to to to, to not have to to spray them, or are they all just or is your area so adapted that you can kind of plant whichever variety you want and you can you can bet that they won't need too much work?
1: Well, it, it varies from one species to another. Uh, in the case of the chestnuts, uh, um, the issue is that uh, there are two serious insect pests of chestnuts in North America and we don't have any of them in our in, our, in in the, the entire state of Iowa has no chestnut weevils or chestnut gall wasps so they don't we don't need to do anything about them um, in the case of some of the fruit trees like uh, Asian pear and European pear for example uh, we do have to select varieties that are uh, uh, highly resistant to fire blight um, because we have enough fire blight in the area that it would make those impossible to grow or or even survive for fire blight susceptible varieties. Um, In the case of persimmon and pawpaw uh, there just aren't any serious disease or pest problems for those plants so they can just make it on their own for decades or centuries with no help from me or anyone else.
0: Very interesting. And, you know, I actually wanted to do a little um, parenthesis here to mention a talk that I listened to. Um, I listened to one of your talks on YouTube from um, the Practical Farmers of Iowa. Um, I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about. And it's a fantastic one hour and a bit talk on, on the practicalities of chestnut production. And chestnut establishment. I'm going to put the link in our notes for our listeners. But it was an absolutely fantastic, uh, very technical conversation, um, and uh, that inspired me quite a lot for this uh, to prepare this interview. Um, again, I advise our listeners to check it out. But one of the things that I was curious about is, you know, you talk about zero input, but how do you manage fertility, for example? How do you, um, how do you fertilize the trees? Well,
1: uh, up until just recently. I've never done any fertilization. Our soil is already naturally so fertile that as far as the chestnuts go the soil may be actually too fertile for chestnuts because the, in some years the, the crop load gets so heavy that uh, branches and sometimes even the whole top out of trees will break from the load. Mm. Um, well, but two years ago we added sheep to the mix, so we're actually grazing sheep under the chestnuts, and so the only fertilization they've ever gotten is from uh, the grazing animals ro- rotating through the trees.
0: Okay, and for the other crops as well, they don't—they uh, don't need any fertilization. You just plant them, and 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 off they go.
1: That's correct. Uh, like you said, our soil is very deep and fertile. Mm moist and well-drained um yes i've i have not added any fertilizer except for just having animals uh, underneath the trees
0: so you must also be practicing a type of agriculture that doesn't degrade your land if you've been doing this for so many years
1: (laughs) yes well yes we we try and mimic what would uh, be happening in uh um savanna type biome uh, with scattered trees and animals grazing under them so it's uh, the only thing i'm controlling is what species are present so yes it's regenerative there's the ground is covered all the time year round with the uh, perennial plants perennial pla- perennial plants are in the roots are in the soil year round feeding the soil microbes um, it, it takes care of itself
0: that's very interesting um, and so may- maybe it's the right time to go a bit more into into that aspect because you know we we often hear of your farm that's talked about an agroforestry farm and I, will, I wanted to know a bit about what's your take on agroforestry well I mean how do, what do you what do you, for you what is agroforestry and how are you practicing it on the red fern farm <coughs>
1: OK. Um, well, uh, academics and, and, and foresters have a long and detailed, complicated definition of agroforestry that usually runs into multiple paragraphs. Uh, my definition of agroforestry is very simple. It's simply the, the deliberate management of woody plants for agricultural purposes. Uh, And by that definition, it actually puts uh, traditional forestry underneath the umbrella of agroforestry. And in my opinion, the ultimate uh, agroforestry practice is growing food for humans and animals on trees, uh, using woody plants to produce all kinds of agricultural products including uh, <coughs> food for humans, feed for animals, uh, fiber, building materials, fuel, medicine uh, and, and all that all together on the same acres at the same time.
0: On your farm, if, if I've understood correctly, you've mixed your species, so you're pr- producing a, mix of, a mixture of perennial crops, sometimes integrating animals underneath and you've planted them in a mixed way, right? You've just mixed them all together. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, like I said, we're kind of mimicking a, a savanna biome, which means there are large overstory trees and then uh, uh, smaller understory trees under them, a, a shrub layer under that and then uh ground cover uh on the soil surface so there's uh, four levels uh vertically four levels of uh, different kinds of plants trees shrubs vines herbaceous ground cover and i I try and make as many of them as possible um, be something that's is harvestable. And it is important to match the species with the soil, uh, especially in terms of soil drainage and soil pH. Uh, some, some trees like chestnuts, for example, will not grow on uh, a lot of soils. Any, any soil that isn't very well drained will not work for chestnuts. It's also important to put trees together that are compatible with each other like uh, it's important not to plant a pear tree next to a black walnut tree because black walnuts produce a hormone in their roots that can uh, uh, stunt or even kill certain trees like pear trees mm. and apple trees. Uh, so the, you have to have some knowledge about what trees work well together and which ones won't work with each other, as well as what kind of sites they take. Uh, another thing to consider is <clears throat> you don't want to have uh, two different crops that drop their f- crop to the ground uh, at, in the same spot. Like, for example, I wouldn't want chestnuts with pecans or walnuts because then I'd have to sort out the different nuts from each other from the ground at harvest time. Uh, but it's perfectly okay to have mm. any kind of fruit that's picked from the tree growing in among other trees that are dropping their, their crop to the ground, such as nut trees.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it seems like there's quite a lot of practical implications here that, um, again, we'll, we'll get into them little by little. Um, but the first question for me, again, to paint the picture of your farm a bit clearer, um, is what's the spacing between your different crops? And I'm sure the farm has got very different spacings all over the place, but as a general or maybe one of your favorites, your ideal spacing that you're trying to, the one that's worked the best for you.
1: Um, well, in the case of the chestnuts, I, I start them out at 20 feet by 20 feet spacing, 20 feet within the row, 20 feet between rows, uh, with the understanding that by the time they reach 20 years of age, they will need to be thinned to 40 by 40 Mm-hmm. and then probably thinned again 50 or 60 years down the road to 80 by 80 and then a final thinning probably somewhere around year 500. I'll have to leave a note for that one. Nice. And then I I like to put pawpaws in between the chestnuts and this is North American pawpaw, okay. not what the British call pawpaw and, and, or what they call pawpaw in India and Australia and New Zealand. It's Um, When the pawpaw is an understory tree, it will grow and thrive and produce fruit even in the shade of chestnut trees. Um, And I'll put one pawpaw in between the chestnuts. So along the chestnut row, there's a pawpaw every 20 feet and a chestnut every 20 feet, but a tree every 10 feet, just alternating between chestnut and pawpaw. And then I like to put a a shrub row in between the chestnut papa rose uh, such as honey, honey, okay. berry, or cerulean. L- L- mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. In the case of uh, heart nuts and persimmons heart, heart nut or persimmons seemed like to grow around walnuts. So I put uh, persimmons and the uh, heart nuts together, but, uh, both of those require full sun so they all have to have their own own space i can't put persimmons underneath the heart nuts Um, also have to be careful if the heart nut is grafted on a black walnut rootstock then there that limits what can be planted close by again because of that hormone produced by the black walnut um but the heart nuts take up a lot of space um, when they're mature, that they may yeah. be forty feet wide, or or wider. Hmm. Um, so yes, I have a lot of different spaces, and it just depends on the species. Uh, honeyberries, I put five feet apart within the row.
0: Honeyberries produces a little. It's kind of like a, a blackberry, but it's 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 kind of orange, yellow color, right?
1: Uh, no, honeyberry is a deep, dark purple, similar to. Blue blueberries, if you're familiar with those.
0: Um, ah, okay. So and, I'm completely off. Okay.
1: Yeah, it's a Linnaeusia cerulea is the species.
0: Okay. Uh
1: That produces a like I said, a dark purple berry, but the the shape can be very different from one variety to another. They can be banana shaped, or round, or uh, cigar shaped, mm. or or they can mm. they can be shaped uh very bizarrely and in fact i've i saw some that were shaped like the like the uh, mouth of a baleen whale opening its mouth
0: <laughs> nice and so uh, talking going back a bit to the spacing, have you experimented with different spacings um and seen that you know at some point you can they can be too close and that can really there 's too much competition between them
1: um yeah i have done some experimenting i used to put two pawpaw trees in between each pair of chestnuts at 20 by 20 spacing and i found that was too close Um, i couldn't Mm. get in between the trees with a mower and with with chestnuts it's absolutely essential to mow under the trees before the nuts start to fall otherwise they they can't be harvested commercially
0: so now mm, I, I only
1: put one pawpaw in between each pair of chestnuts instead of two. But uh, uh, for the most part, I researched the plants ahead of time and figured out what their, what their spacing should be before I planted. I was just wrong about the pawpaws.
0: But you haven't seen... I mean, th- the first thing that somebody uh, listening to your system may think, somebody who's more familiar with the conventional way of planting these different crops would be that there is some form of competition for light and for water, um, most noticeably, uh, between these crops. Is this something that you have observed?
1: Um, In the case of the trees, the the trees can compete with each other for sunlight, but not really so much for moisture or nutrients. Um, and, And that's why it's important to... Be careful in selecting what trees are put underneath larger trees. The, uh, trees that are tolerant of shade have to go under larger trees. Um, so they're competing mainly for sunlight, not for moisture and nutrients, at least at our location. In a place where, with a much drier soil, a drier climate, they might be competing for moisture also, but that's really not the case here.
0: You haven't noticed that this that the pawpaw fruit has um, has suffered from competition with light with the chestnut. Is this something that as the chestnuts grow, is this something that you've started seeing the, the trees leaning out and trying to fetch light, or do they? Uh, no, the
1: pawpaws don't don't lean out. And, in fact, the pawpaws actually prefer to grow uh, in partial shade versus full sun. Um, But that said, pawpaws will produce more fruit and larger sized fruit if they're growing in full sun versus in the shade, but that's okay. Uh, As I tell people, I get 100% of a chestnut crop and then 50 to 75% of a pawpaw crop from the same acre at the same time. That adds up to 175%. Uh, Normally, it's really hard to make 100%, but I, I I exceed 100%. With this method,
0: mm. what about the honeyberries? Are they do they do better in the full sun usually?
1: Um, they're they're experimental for me right now. I I have noticed that they they okay. grow very well uh, under shade, but it seems to affect their fruit production. Uh, in fact, uh, they they seem to produce not not very much in when they're in full shade, even though the plants seem to grow and thrive there. So I think it's probably gonna turn out that the honeyberries will need full sun or, or at least uh, uh, they, they're not gonna be an understory shrub.
0: Okay, maybe it would be in a, a case of them um, producing in the establishment years and then little by little needing to be removed from the system, right? Is that an option for you?
1: Yes, except I probably wouldn't go to the trouble of removing them. They, um, they'd probably just remove themselves once it gets too shady for them. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it, it, it may be that they only work uh, when the, the chestnut trees are still fairly young and small.
0: Looking at the chestnuts, you talked about a hundred percent production um, um, now, but you know what does that compare to other chestnut growers in the region? because you've got, I'm, I'm, I'm relating this more to the no input strategy. Does that mean you have less inputs, but less productivity than if you were spreading some MPK regularly every year, for example? Uh, uh, no. Um, like, like I
1: said, I, our, our soil is some of the very best in the whole world for growing trees. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> it, it's kind of hard to, hard to measure and compare the production because uh, I have younger trees mixed in with older trees, uh, but I'm, I'm estimating that on our mature trees, the ones that are over 20 years old, we're producing around 5,000 pounds per acre. Um, you compare this with uh, other chestnut growers in other parts of the Midwest with poor soil, um, Th- they're producing much less even though they're using lots of fertilizer
0: mm.
1: and I'm producing much more without fertilizer. Um, in, th- in fact, for example, uh, um, there's, there are chestnuts planted on reclaimed strip mine areas that are only producing around 500 pounds per acre with fertilizer while, while mine are producing 5,000 pounds per acre without fertilizer. So it depends on the this, this quality of the soil that where they're growing.
0: Yeah, 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 that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting to notice that even though they do have the, you know, the inputs on their side and irrigation and etc., you know, nothing can really compensate for a good soil base to start off with.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, in fact, uh, research done at the University of Missouri found that uh, fertilizer cannot compensate for poor soil. The, the fertilizer only allows a soil to reach its potential, but it cannot increase that soil's potential. Uh, so a, a poor soil, even with fertilizer, will not produce as much as a good soil without fertilizer.
0: How, how has your soil evolved? Have you, have you done soil tests since, I mean, you started 25 years ago, right?
1: Uh, yes, we have. Uh, we haven't really perfected the test. We tried uh, a, a test for uh, soil microbe activity called the tea bag test developed by a uh, professor, Marshall McDaniel at Iowa State University. And, but the, the results are somewhat inconclusive so far. And I think the test needs to be um, fine tuned to make it work better. Um, uh, aside from that, uh, the University of Illinois has been doing tests on our soil and comparing it to uh, conventional cropland in in adjacent areas. And uh, someone just gave a presentation on that the results of that study. Uh, but I missed it. I was <laughs> away doing something else.
0: <laughs> nice. so I'm not
1: I'm not sure what they found, but. Um,
0: We'll need to try get our hands on that to see. Uh, to see what is it a is it a presentation that's on YouTube that's um, available for everybody, or was it more of a private event?
1: Um, it was a it was a presentation at uh, at the annual meeting of the Savannah Institute.
0: Uh, ah, okay. I,
1: suspect, I suspect it will will be. It was recorded and will be available, but I'm not certain of that.
0: Nice. Well, I was actually. I think if it was the two thousand twenty-one conference for agroforestry and carbon drawdown, I was listening to it. Um, not all of it, though. So I must have missed that part. And um, we'll try to. There should be the uh, the recordings available. So um, I also advise our listeners to check out this that amazing conference.
1: That would be the the report done by Will Eddy.
0: Okay. Perfect. Nice. Thanks for the reference. So I wanted to delve a bit into um, some of your the decisions that you made, some of the design decisions that you made on your farm um, in terms of agroforestry, because, you know, as you're very familiar in agroforestry, there's a lot of integrations of animals, but there's also integration of timber species uh, into crops and etc. Um, and I wanted to understand a bit better your decisions around that. For example, um, have you considered using animals in between your crops? For example, poultry or 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 maybe sheep. Um, um, was that a consideration for you?
1: Um, yeah, we actually started with goats uh, about. Um, nearly 30 years ago, and, and I tried for about 25 years to integrate goats with trees, and I finally had to give up on it. Uh, but now we are grazing sheep under our trees. Uh, they're under the trees constantly, uh, moving from one paddock to another. Uh, and we also have chickens under the trees, and, and we've had chickens and turkeys under the trees in the past. Uh, so yes, we've we've had livestock integrated right from the start.
0: Um, okay, it
1: was a a period of several years where we didn't have any anything except chickens. Uh, we we had to give up on the goats because they they're too hard to fence and they love to eat tree leaves. Uh, mm. But the sheep are working out very well under the trees.
0: Is that a, at a commercial scale? Do you sell the sheep, or is it more? Uh how how does it work?
1: Um... Yes, the excess lambs are sold uh, commercially.
0: How many lambs do you have?
1: <clears throat> I I don't have good track of it. I think we have around uh, twenty ewes right now, and uh, there's still there's still several lambs that haven't been sold yet, or waiting to get them up to size. But uh, I would say probably we're going to be selling a, just around uh, 10 to 20 lambs per year. So it's, it's a small mm, fantastic. scale. And the main purpose of having the sheep is uh, to improve the soil under the chestnuts.
0: Okay. You've just opened a whole other chapter because I wasn't expecting us to delve into this specific subject. Um, but I've been looking actually recently for... Um, um, somebody who can talk to me uh, about um, talk to us on the podcast about integrating animals with fruit and nut uh, crops. So maybe it's time to open this chapter with you and to discuss your experience with the, with the sheep. Um, and I'd love to know a bit more about how, for example, do you protect the tree trunks from damage? That's something that we're, we're experiencing quite a lot where I'm working right now. And we have to invest quite heavily on fencing out the trees, actually.
1: Um. <clears throat> Well, for um, um, young trees that, that are not yet established, we use uh, what are called tree shelters or grow tubes. It's a translucent plastic tube, uh, v- ventilated, mm-hmm. uh, five feet tall, and uh, supported with a stake. And uh, th- those were not did not work to keep goats off the trees, but the, the sheep don't bother the trees when they are protected by these grow tubes or tree shelters. Um, from multi stem shrubs that aren't suited to those uh, tubes, we uh, we do have to keep the sheep away from, the, from shrubs until they get established. But once the trees and, and shrubs are established, then uh, the, the sheep are no longer a problem. They, they might browse some very low leaves on the shrubs, but the, uh, they don't really do any damage to the shrubs once they're established and, and can grow up out of reach of the sheep. But yeah, in, in some cases you might have to keep the sheep away from the trees until they're established.
0: Do they ever try to rub on the on the rub themselves and scratch themselves on the uh, on the grow tubes that you're using?
1: Um, no, the the tubes are smooth enough that they really aren't uh, attractive for rubbing. Uh, we with the pawpaw trees, which we don't need to put tall tubes on, um, because the deer and sheep don't like browsing on them, uh, but but the sheep do rub on them a little bit and they sometimes break branches, but it's not enough, uh, enough damage to worry about once the trees are... Uh, they don't even have to be fully established uh, in the case of the pawpaws. Uh, they do get rubbed on, but it doesn't hurt them enough uh, to slow them down. In.
0: And so the chestnuts, once, they, once you remove the tube, for example, do the sheep ever have a go at the bark? Do you ever get bark damage?
1: Um, not so far. Uh, uh, we rotate the sheep uh, every day or every other day to a new paddock so uh, mm-hmm. they always have access to high quality forage that they like better than tree bark. Uh, so no, we've never, <coughs> never had any damage to the bark of uh, trees from sheep.
0: That's fantastic. What uh, sheep variety do you have? What sheep breed, sorry, to talk um, in animal terms?
1: Uh, uh, we have Katahdin sheep, which is a hair type sheep. They they don't produce wool, mm-hmm. and they they shed their hair uh, in spring at the end of winter, so they don't have to be sheared.
0: Okay.
1: And they're also a highly uh, resistant to parasites, so we've never had to uh, uh, treat them for uh, for internal parasites. At all, whereas other sheep, other breeds of sheep, are difficult to keep alive even with uh, twice weekly treatments for parasites.
0: Do you what kind of nets do you use, or what kind of fencing do you use? How, how do you move them around?
1: Uh, we use a uh, uh, electric net fencing from a company called Premier One, which is located just about a half an hour away from our uh, farm, uh, mm. but. Uh, uh, they're actually a, a pretty large company that supplies fencing all over the world, uh, but yeah, you know, their fencing works very well. We've only had the sheep escape one time, and I think it was when either a coyote or dog spooked the flock and got them to stampede through the net. And that that's happened once in two years. The, the goats, on the other hand, would get out every day. Mm.
0: Really <laughs> that must have been chaotic
1: yeah i've I've photos of our goats fifteen feet up in trees eating leaves,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh I mean it's quite typical uh in a way, right so we in, in Greece we have them as well climbing onto whatever tree they can, all the olive trees and etc sometimes you don't see them on the floor you see you have to look up at the trees to find the, uh, where, the where the goats are at um so I, I wanted to understand as well that you, you, you have it connected to an electric box that's powered by that's solar powered, right?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And and they're usually usually moved either every day or at the most every other day.
0: When you have sheep, I mean, you're, you're using the sheep to manage the grass to keep it to keep it low. Are they are you happy with that? Because sheep can be quite uh, selective at uh, at grazing, and so. Do, do they kind of replace your need to have to pass with uh, with a mower or is it still something you have to to complement on top of uh, of the sheep uh, um, grazing?
1: Yeah we still have to mow uh, and we have to get the sheep away from the trees well before the nuts drop but uh, and, but it's just a side benefit that our main purpose for having the sheep is to improve the soil but as a, be- a side benefit Besides having excess lambs for sale, they have also dramatically reduced Mm -hmm. the amount Mm -hmm. of mowing and the cost of mowing. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay. Mm
1: -hmm. Before we got the sheep, we would have to spend several weeks uh, uh, trying to get the vegetation mowed down in preparation for the nuts to fall. Uh, Now, just a single Mm -hmm. pass with a mower uh, very quickly uh, accomplishes the same thing.
0: Mm, that's very interesting. Um, I mean, there's so many things to delve into here uh, to, to understand this better. But do you do you let the grasses grow to a certain height? Do you let the grasses develop themselves physiologically before you before you graze them? For example, in spring, before fruits are ready? Or do you constantly keep your grass uh, mowed? Um... Yeah, I understand mm-hmm. your question. No, our, our grass
1: gets really tall before the sheep move on to it and graze. Uh, Because we have Mm. enough acres and the the sheep are few enough that uh, uh, they might only pass through an area two or three times a year. And so the grass gets pretty tall in between grazing events.
0: Okay. But just before harvest, it's everything super clean, super mode, super tidy, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. We we actually... uh, evaluate each tree one at a time and decide when it needs to be mowed and so uh, when we see a chestnut tree is just about mm. ready to start dropping nuts then we'll go under that particular tree and mow really short with a mower uh, to be ready for those nuts to fall uh, to make it easy to har- easy for the customers to harvest.
0: I mean I'd really like to see some pictures of your soil I mean, this is, this is the frustrating part of the podcast is that we're just talking by voice. Uh, and also I'm not, uh, we, we're not together and on your field interviewing, um, but uh, maybe it's something you can send us, right? Do you have some nice pictures of your soil, Just understand how, uh, I mean, animals plus the perennial system, plus the grass is growing and getting mowed regularly. It must've created a thick layer of, 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 of black soil on the surface.
1: Um, <clears throat> yeah, our, our, our soil is, is dark brown um in places where it didn't suffer any erosion it's around uh, 14 inches thick which would be probably um maybe around 35 centimeters 40 centimeters yeah Mm. 35 or 40 Mm -hmm. centimeters thick Uh, and then under that is a, a a much lighter layer of uh of uh Soil with a high clay content. Uh, but yeah, okay. around 14 inches or so of, of very dark soil with, with a fairly Fantastic. high organic matter. And like I said, it is uh,
0: yeah, there, it
1: there's no soil in the world that's better at growing temperate hardwood trees. There are several soils that are equal mm-hmm. to it, but none are better than what we have.
0: I mean, it makes me wonder. Have you thought about producing more hardwood trees? Have you thought about producing wood uh, for timber or for you know? Uh, have you thought about entering yeah. that business?
1: Um, well, like I said, we about sixty acres of our farm is already uh, wild forest that is producing um, wood, and and we did. I I I do manage. Uh, that for wood production.
0: Okay. Um, so what kind of wood do you harvest?
1: Well, our, our most valuable tree is black walnut. Uh, in terms of wood value, uh, a, a single black walnut tree can be worth uh, twenty to $40,000 at harvest time. Hmm. Um, we And we are growing black walnut, but we uh, haven't, had any harvest of those yet. Uh, we also have white oak and red oak, and those would be the three main uh, valuable hardwood trees. But we also have hickory mm. and uh, wild cherry and um, lots of other species. Oh, amazing. Too. But the, ma- the main commercial ones that would be valuable would be black walnut, white oak and red oak.
0: What's the, what's the life cycle of your black walnut before harvest? And normally it takes,
1: yeah. Normally it takes uh, between fifty to hundred years for a black walnut to mm-hmm. to, to be uh, big enough to harvest, and and uh, and the number of years depends on the what it is you want to harvest. So there's there's saw timber which
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, only needs to be well, fourteen to eighteen inch diameter, but uh, for the highest quality veneer which is what brings the best price. The, the trunk diameter needs to be minimum of uh, 28 inches at breast height, uh, and, that, and that could take 100 years.
0: Okay, very interesting. And uh, I just wanted to shift back a bit to the sheep. Um, where do you put the sheep when, when you need to get them out of the orchard? I guess you have lots of prairie fields around. I mean, you've got a big land. Uh, do you just move them out and keep them somewhere, uh, keep them out of the orchard, of the nut production zones? Is that is that right?
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, we do have some areas that, that don't have uh, trees we harvest for human food and that we can keep them grazing during the, the harvest period. And the, the harvest period is about one month long. So that's that's not very long that we have to keep them out away mm. from the trees.
0: So you ha- that's, a, that's a very short harvest period. Um, it means that you have like high intense activity in, during that one month, but the rest of the time it's, it's rather low intensity.
1: Yes, that's true. Uh, between the mid-September and mid-October, uh, there's uh, <coughs> a lot of harvesting going on. Fortunately, we have customers to do that work for us.
0: So that's definitely something we need to go into. but I'm um, still got a few questions about the the way the system's working. and then we'll go into the more business side of things, which is one of the very interesting aspects, one of the many very interesting aspects of your farm, and I'm discovering more and more as we go. Um, going back to the sheep, w- would you be interesting interested in increasing the size of your herd?
1: Well, first, I need to say the the sheep are actually my son's project. So he manages them okay. and he gets the sale, gets the money from the sale of the lambs.
0: Mm.
1: And so he's the one who decides the size of the flock. Um, and and right now we're still kind of learning. We've only had them for two years or uh, yeah, right around two years now. So we're we're still okay. learning how to, how to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I do believe there is potential for increasing the, the herd size. We obviously have a whole lot more uh, grass than what the sheep we have are, are able to utilize fully. So we, we could probably double or even triple the uh, size of the herd.
0: I'm sure. But there's also all the fodder tree, all the trees that you could use for for fodder, uh, especially if you've got lots of forest wild trees. Is, is this something that you do in times of drought? Uh, we
1: actually haven't had a drought since we've had the sheep, so that's uh, something we haven't had to resort to yet, but uh, the that would definitely be a possibility if we needed to go, go that route.
0: Okay, and uh, legally there's no problem for you guys in terms of integrating the sheep there and harvesting the nuts, especially from the floor
1: now, not for us. There, there is a thing called the Food Safety Modernization Act of 2012, which normally would yeah. pre- prohibit having livestock under the trees. Um, yeah. in, our, in our situation for the chestnuts between mid-May to mid-October, uh, which is would be 90% of the grazing season. But uh, we are yeah. actually what they call qualified exempt from those regulations because... Um, more than 50% of our customers are what they call qualified customers, meaning either end users, restaurants, or grocery stores. In our case, it's all end users, uh, virtually a hundred percent of our customers are end users. So, um, we are exempt from those regulations that would force us to get the animals away from the trees, uh, for that five month period, uh, we, we still have to follow some of the regulations and we have to post our complete address at the point of sale and we have to maintain records showing um, uh, who our customers are and that they are qualified customers. Uh, but we're exempt from almost all the other regulations. Uh, that would not be the case for somebody who's selling chestnuts to a broker, for example, or, or to a co-op. Um,
0: then they just couldn't do it.
1: They they couldn't do the grazing between mid May and mid October,
0: mm, which kills their grazing. Any grazing plans they may have, basically, yes.
1: Which is another argument for doing U pick, because one hundred percent of the U pick customers are qualified customers.
0: Do you uh, agree with maybe the logic, the secure the I mean the health and s- and safety logic behind this law? Is this something that, I mean, from a person that's coming from the ground, that's experiencing it? The law has
1: no science behind it. Uh, in fact, recent studies have shown that all of the benefit from moving animals off of the land occur in the first five days. And after that period, uh, the the population of the uh, pathogenic microbes crashes in the first five days and then re- remains steady after that. So, uh, there is a good argument, a good scientific argument for moving the livestock off um, at least five days before harvesting, but not beyond that period.
0: What about parasites?
1: Well, the parasites are usually very species specific. So the, the parasites okay. that would affect the sheep, for example, uh, aren't even able to survive in cattle, let alone humans. Uh, so no, that's not, not a concern.
0: Very interesting.
1: And and we do move the sheep off well ahead of the harvest season. We just don't don't move them off 120 days ahead of time.
0: Hmm. So, integrating timber trees in your fruit and nut production or around close to them is that a con- is that something that you do? Um. Yeah. The. The timber production is nearby,
1: but not in the same area as the fruit and nut and berry production. Uh, mm-hmm. We have the the whole farm is eighty six acres, and about sixty of those acres are just wild f- forest.
0: Okay, so you you don't really have the need to mix them together. You don't uh, you don't see any real purpose for that.
1: Um, no, well, it, uh, actually, we do have black walnuts mixed in among our crop producing trees, but they're grafted varieties of black walnut that produce a larger, Mm -hmm. thinner shelled more easily cracked nut. Uh, But because they are black walnuts, they also produce valuable wood, but it's going to be many decades before those are large enough to be uh, harvestable.
0: Even though they are grafted and even though they are varieties selected for nuts, they are still valuable for wood. That's right, huh?
1: Um, yeah, so, uh, some grafted varieties of black walnut uh, don't have a growth form conducive to harvesting for wood, but the ones that we have uh, can serve both purposes, both wood and nut production.
0: So maybe we can move on now to looking more at the economics and the business side, which is something we focus a lot on the podcast. Because naturally, if it doesn't work for, if agroforestry doesn't work for the bottom line of the farmer, it's not something they should be even considering. Uh, and that's something we talked about together in the short call that we had uh, before before this one. Um, and again, looking at your presentation, I really appre- I really enjoyed your approach. Um, um, the other presentation, I mean, I, I really enjoyed your. Uh, the way that you were addressing this economic aspect and that you were communicating it with the farmers. So maybe you can... One of the things that you did say in this presentation was that, you know, chestnut is a really interesting crop economically. Um, You've maybe touched upon this a bit until now, but it might be worth repeating or building on to what you've already said. Why is that the case? Why do you say that? Uh, (coughs) Well, compared to other nut crops of
1: Uh, like in, in the U.S., the main nut crops are pecan, uh, hazel, uh, almond, and walnut, uh, per- Persian walnut, um, compared to chestnuts. Chestnuts are much more productive in terms of pounds per acre. Uh, uh, they're more reliably productive. They tend to produce a, a full crop every year, whereas the, the these other nut crops tend to be... Um, Biennially productive they'll produce a good crop one year and then a, a poor crop or no crop at all the next year and sometimes a couple of years before having another good crop they're also much mm-hmm. more valuable per pound uh we're getting mm-hmm. uh as much as three dollars a pound for chestnuts without having to pick them up our customers do the harvesting for us whereas uh um uh, the the other nut crops are often uh, Maybe somewhere around a dollar, a dollar fifty a pound, sometimes less than a dollar per pound. Uh, So chestnuts produce twice as much as the other crops and sell for two to four times more than the other crops. And they do it every year. Uh, So um, uh, chestnuts in Iowa are approximately ten times more profitable than pecans in Georgia or almonds in. In, or walnuts in California or hazels in Oregon um, and that's what makes our system work because the chestnuts are just so valuable and the demand is so high the the gap between supply and demand is so large uh, and, and then they're they're easy to harvest um, and, and they're ready they're ready to to be sold the moment they hit the ground whereas some of the other crops have to be processed in some way before they're marketable.
0: So why are people not doing more chestnuts?
1: Well, in, in the case of North America, we lost our native chestnut species about a hundred years ago to a fungal disease that came from Asia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And today there are practically no Americans left who even remember chestnuts, except for people who are around 100 years old or even older, uh, are the only people who who can remember American chestnuts. And so, the only thing Americans know about chestnuts is you roast them on an open fire at Christmas time. Uh, there's a Christmas song. In like fact, the title of the song is the Christmas song. It talks about chestnuts, and that's all Americans know about chestnuts. Most Americans have never seen one. Uh, let alone tasted one, Uh, and our market is mostly to people who were born and raised in other parts of the world where chestnuts are known and loved, but uh, Americans just don't know anything about chestnuts.
0: So there's quite a small market for chestnuts.
1: No, it's a very large market. Um, There are enough people in this country who were born and raised in other parts of the world that uh, uh, there is a huge market for chestnuts. It just isn't to Americans. The Americans want one pound mm-hmm. of chestnuts at Christmas time. Uh, whereas our typical Bosnian customers, for example, want 300 to 800 pounds in September. I'd much rather mm-hmm. sell 800 pounds of chestnuts to one Bosnian in September than to make mm-hmm. 801 pound sales to Anglo Americans in December.
0: Uh, I, yeah I, I, for sure
1: I did some calculations uh, a few years ago um, based on the the average number of acres of chestnuts being planted in the US uh, per year and based on the, the market for those and and I came up with a figure it, that it would take 285 years before we have enough chestnut trees in the ground to meet the demand we had back in the year 2000 but demand isn't so if demand remained flat for 285 years that's how long it would take for us to grow enough to meet demand but uh demand doesn't remain flat it's it's growing much faster than the acreage of chestnuts
0: that's fantastic uh, statistics amazing that we're able to hear these uh calculations uh, on the show um does anybody produce chestnut wholesale and um i mean you know on a on a large scale and that sell it wholesale in the U S and at what price do they sell their chestnuts? Um,
1: <clears throat> I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are a few there. Th- even the largest growers aren't really large on a scale like, uh, mm-hmm. almond and walnut growers in California or hazel growers in Oregon. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I know there are some wholesalers, um, and, I, and I think they're getting somewhere in the range of three to eight dollars a pound or so, which is much higher than okay wholesale price than any other nut crop in the U.S.
0: But is it easy to mechanize? I mean, the harvest. Uh, just trying to understand. And and how do you do it actually on your farm? How do you how do you harvest the chestnuts? So how do your your clients harvest the chestnuts?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, we use a a machine called a nut wizard, which is a wire basket uh, about the size and shape of a football that rolls on the end of a pole. Mm -hmm. And when it rolls over the nuts, the wires squeeze apart and the nuts pop inside the basket and then they're easily dumped into a bucket or other container. And we have a fleet of those. We have 20-some of those. And we loan those out to our customers. And they use them to harvest. And then they give them back at the end of the day when they're, when they're ready to check out. Um, and those work really well for us in our situation. Um, there are machines that harvest chestnuts also, though. Uh, there's a machine made in Italy called a FACMA that uh, I've seen work. And uh, But I'm not tempted to swap out my nut wizards for a FACMA machine at all. Why is that? Well, the machines I use don't require any fuel or oil. And uh, they don't make noise. And at the end of the day, they go home after they pay me.
0: Oh. <laughs> Very interesting. Okay. nice yeah yeah well they're very they're much more adapted uh the nut wizards are much more adapted to the your system because you've got clients coming in and picking them themselves you're not going to give them a machine but i mean another way to do it would be to for you to use the facma for example um harvest the 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 nuts relatively efficiently i expect and then to have them uh, on boxes uh, for your customers to come in to just pick them from the box is, is that a, an alternative that is worth considering?
1: Um, yes, we used to do it that way. Um, but we don't need to do that now. Uh, all I have to do now is mow the grass and collect the money. Why would I want to go to all that extra work of harvesting and boxing the nuts when I have customers who are willing to do that for me?
0: That's, that argument is difficult to argue with.
1: <laughs> I, I would not consider yeah. going back to the old way, not at all.
0: Is the Fakma efficient at all? I mean, I remembered somewhere you may have mentioned, like this—you did some calculations again, looking at the efficiency of the FACMA vs a team picking up with the uh, with the nut wizard. Is, y- yes, that, is that correct?
1: I, yes. Um, I talked to the sales rep for the machine, and uh, I can't remember exactly what he said. Uh, he, but he he was telling I asked him about the acres per hour or hours per acre or whatever and i I figured that five people with nut wizards could stay ahead of that machine
0: okay, nice so maybe um keep you know on the same topic of the let's call it the economics of of your system and and you know why how, how do you define if a crop the crops that you do sell commercially at the moment, what define, I mean, you've got 70 different species, but three or four of them are your main commercial species. You've talked about chestnut now, but what, what characteristics in the crops are you looking for or have made you choose these species as your commercial ones? Was it more a demand side thing? Was it more a production side things? And well, you know, how do you define, how did you decide these are my commercial species? And that's what I'm focusing on.
1: Well, it, it it's a combination of supply and uh, production and demand. Uh, a species has to be productive, has has to produce enough, and then I have to be able to sell it for a high enough price to make it worthwhile. Uh, also, um, the need for post-harvest handling and processing is another important consideration for example uh, in the in the case of hazelnuts which i do not consider to be a commercial crop a commercially viable crop it's not because there isn't demand you can sell hazelnuts but the kind of hazels we grow we, we are able to grow here are a bush type hazel that do not drop the nuts to the ground so the nuts have to be picked from the bush and to do it commercially it has to be done mm-hmm. by machine and then you have to have another machine yeah. to remove the husk, and then you have to another have to have another machine <coughs> to to size the nuts before they go into a cracking machine, and then they have to be cracked, and then mm-hmm. you have to have another machine to separate the shell and kernel from the uh, before you have a product ready to sell. With the chestnuts, as soon as they hit the ground, I can have a customer come and pick them up, and and uh, and they're sold without. Uh, without the machines, without the processing. And they sell for a much higher price. And they produce more pounds per acre. Uh, in the case of the hazels, uh, it costs $4 a pound uh, to harvest and get something ready to sell. And then you can sell it for less than a dollar a pound. So with hazels, you lose money on every pound you grow.
0: So mm, and you're competing with highly mechanized systems that can yeah. produce it very cheap right yeah it's a no-brainer really
1: yes although you would be surprised at how many people with phds after their name are trying to figure out how to uh, uh, grow hazels profitably uh, and totally ignoring chestnuts
0: I'm quite excited. Do you know uh, uh, Russell Smith? And uh, I'm sure you do. Uh, the book that he wrote, which the J- J title Russell escapes uh, me now. Uh, tree crops. J. Russell Smith. There we go. Who, tree, tree crops. There we tree go. Um, yes. It's quite exciting to consider the idea of chestnuts as a carbohydrate source for our society. A perennial one that doesn't need fantastic soil conditions to thrive. It needs actually... So it, 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 sometimes, as you said, it, the soil can be too fertile for chestnuts. It does well on so- on slopes that are well drained, but not too well drained. So it's it, it's opening a whole a whole vast area of of a potential area of of production to 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 feed um, a source of carbohydrates to to the population. Something which, for example, you know haz- uh, hazelnuts or almonds, they're not so rich in carbohydrates. So it's more protein and fat. Uh, so, what, I mean, what, what do you think about this? What do you think about the potential of scaling chestnut in order for it to be a, a staple?
1: Um, well, chestnuts, as you say, don't require really good soil. In fact, they can thrive on fairly poor soil, although they are more productive on better soils. Um, but they are picky. They, they do have to have well-drained soil. They will not tolerate poor drainage at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We found that out in 2018,
0: mm-hmm.
1: where we had some planted on less than very well-drained soils, and those died from too much rain.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but yes, there are mm-hmm. millions mm-hmm. of acres in the U.S. that could be growing chestnuts uh, and producing high income for the farmer in and instead, they're planted with corn and soybeans and and wheat. Uh, when they could be producing a a a very high value crop that yeah. does not mm-hmm. degrade the soil.
0: And then the limit is demand. No, but that's not the limit. I apologize because you've just explained to me the calculation that there is a huge demand.
1: Yes, uh, um, <coughs> I've been told that. Uh, Chestnut is the number three nut in the world in terms of demand behind coconuts and peanuts. Well, neither coconuts or peanuts are true nuts. The peanuts mm-hmm. are as a legume. Uh, yeah. And, and coconut is, uh, isn't even an angiosperm. It's a, it's a gymnosperm. Uh, so that makes chestnuts the number yeah. one nut in the world in terms of demand, the, the number one true nut. Uh, yeah, the demand for chestnuts is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely huge, both in the U.S. and all over the world. And there aren't near enough of them being grown.
0: That's very exciting potential. Just maybe to convince some of our farmer listeners that may be getting a bit excited about this, um, how long does it take for a chestnut to start producing? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I've had chestnut seedlings that were still in pots trying to produce nuts. Uh although that's not normal Uh, uh, in our conditions with a tree shelter and on a good site uh, chestnuts start you start seeing chestnut production on average in three to four years sometimes as early as two years Uh, you can start seeing commercial sized harvests in year six usually around six seven eight before measuring your harvest in hundreds of pounds per acre. Um, and they can reach uh, uh, on the best soils again, uh, 5,000 pounds per acre uh, by the time they're 20 years old.
0: Very interesting. Okay. Thanks for that. I wanted to talk a bit about the Yupik. Um, and you know, so that, that means that you're direct, you're selling directly to the customer. Um, but the challenge of that is often to find enough customers. So how did you manage to get enough customers to distribute your, your, the, the, your production? And maybe before that, we need to understand, if you're willing to share this information, how much chestnuts do you produce on an average year?
1: Um, well, we really don't have enough years to, to save for certain in terms of production per year. And, and most of our trees are still young. Uh, we only have a equivalent of about okay. one acre of really mature trees and about
0: uh, okay.
1: 10 acres of, yeah, of trees that are, or nine acres of trees that are just coming into high production. And then a few more acres that aren't, aren't in production yet. But in terms of how we got our customers, okay. it was totally by accident. Um, in 2013, <laughs> we had uh, some customers who, uh, um, begged us to let them come and pick their own and I did not want to do it Uh, I was afraid of liability but they were good customers and uh, the dad was dying of cancer and he wanted to pick chestnuts one more time before he died because he's from a country where he picked chestnuts from the time he was a toddler so I couldn't say no okay so I told him okay but don't tell anybody that we let you do this and within three days we had a list of 20 some people who wanted to come and do you pick a year later it was 70 some and today we have a list of 360 names each one representing usually an extended family of people who want to come and do you pick and we have the ability to serve maybe 40 of them a year so we have way more customers than we can serve and our list gets longer every year it gets longer and longer. And, and we have actually been, um, referring customers to other farms with chestnuts. Uh, are, and so there are, there's actually four farms around us that are doing UPIC now uh, taking over our, our, our overflow and it's still not enough. So there's huge unmet demand for UPIC chestnuts.
0: And uh, is, it, is it a bit challenging to have people walking around your farm? Is that something that do you ever have like damage or animals get scared or get fed things they shouldn't get fed or I don't know. It seems to be a, a potential concern with this system.
1: There there are certainly problems, some problems, but none of them are insurmountable. Um, there's, there's some amount of littering going on. Um, uh, because it's a nut farm, we I, I set squirrel traps, and I thought, as long as I kept them up out of reach of small children, that I wouldn't need to tell adults not to stick their hand into a squirrel trap, but turned out I was wrong about that.
0: Um, wow.
1: So, uh, so we, we had a customer get injured by a squirrel trap once, uh, but... The, the biggest problem is just scheduling customers and then making sure they show up for their picking appointments. And, but it's, it's a lot easier than what we used to do, which was do our, all our own harvesting and, and then haul them to the co-op.
0: Yeah, naturally. So you're, you're scaling up your system now to try and meet the demand, right? Or have you stopped planting chestnuts?
1: Um, Let's see. Uh, I haven't completely stopped planting more, but I'm running out of acres where I could plant them. As most of the farm is too steep and rugged to manage for harvesting chestnuts. If you can't mow under a tree, Mm -hmm. if it's too steep to mow, you can't harvest Mm -hmm. there and any chestnuts there would be for Mm -hmm. wildlife only. Uh, But no, there Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I am not trying to meet demand because there is absolutely no hope. If, if I owned 10,000 acres of land, I still would not be able to meet demand for chestnuts. So I'm not, I'm not trying to meet demand. And, and I'm pretty close to where I want to be. Uh, and I, I don't want to really grow much beyond
0: where we are right now. That's interesting. But what's really crazy about it is that there's so much demand for you pick. I mean, one thing is demand for you know people going to grocery stores and 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 uh, supermarkets and getting hold of chestnuts there where they usually go shopping. But a demand for going on the farm and spending their time to pick the nut and on top of that paying for it, it seems to be. Um, I mean, it seems to there's some. It's 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 clearly tapping into some you know, need of the customers that that goes beyond just the chestnut as well.
1: Yes. Um, um, Our customers seem to be much more excited about picking their own than they are about buying them already picked. Um, And part of that is the fact that um, the chestnut harvest is occurring at a time of year when it's very pleasant to be outside uh, the, the weather's usually mm. absolutely beautiful, um, plenty of shade under the trees, and people just have a very good time picking chestnuts. Yeah. Uh, uh, also, I think it's nice in, the, in, in the case of a lot of our customers, it's, it's reminding them of being back in the old country because mo- most of our customers are, are coming nice. from other parts of the world.
0: Okay, nice. So I think for, for me, I'm just trying to think a bit, looking at my notes. I wanted to look a bit at, at pow pow and your other crops. So that's also you pick, right? You're also you're selling everything yep. on your farm you pick. Correct.
1: Uh, pawpaws are the second most popular uh, crop. And we, uh, last year, we only had around 100 trees that were uh, producing fruit. But from those 100 trees, the customers picked 2,500 pounds of fruit, which would be just, I guess that would be just under a metric ton. And we sold them for $3 mm-hmm. a pound or, uh, well, it was uh, over $7,000 from a what was the equivalent yeah. of one acre of trees. Uh, mm mm-hmm. And, they, and these were growing mostly underneath chestnut trees. So yeah. it's, it's additional income from the same acre that, that's producing income from chestnut trees. And, and again, yeah. last year we, we, had, we had way more customers than we were able to serve. We, we had to turn lots of people away uh, because we did not have enough pawpaw trees for, for everybody. We have a lot more pawpaw trees coming into production this year uh, but we're still not going to be able to meet demand.
0: You're choosing your crops well.
1: Uh, Yes but it's, it's it's all by accident.
0: Because it's quite a good big coincidence that they are on one hand trees that don't need a lot of inputs, trees that have a good selling price, trees that have a lot of demand, trees that don't need to minimal pruning, I mean, this is all—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's nearly too beautiful to be true, in a way. When you're listening to this from the outside, I'm sure some of the, listen, the listeners are listening to this and saying, "I can't make that work in my context."
1: Yeah, and that—that that might be true in some contexts. In other parts of the country, they have uh, insect pests of chestnuts that that have to be managed, or you can't sell nuts. Yeah. Or we don't have those pests here, not yet, anyway. Uh, yeah it does yeah. almost sound too good to be true
0: but it's even if you have a bit more spraying to do in the year because of climate change and etc and then and the shifting everything that's happening at the moment it wouldn't break the bank either
1: no well but like i said i really don't like spraying or pruning so i like to grow crops yeah. that don't need either
0: one no of course naturally um Great, and and what what went behind the choice of the honeyberries? I mean, it's a new crop you're experimenting with. Why is there a big market for those as well? Uh, they're experimental
1: right now, uh, but I I actually acquired honeyberries about 25 years ago, uh, and I really mm-hmm. liked the taste of them. They were I thought they were absolutely delicious, and the trouble was the these were. Uh, Wild-type bushes that produced berries that were about the size and shape of a grain of rice, and it took about a half an hour of picking to get a teaspoonful. And mm. even though they even though they tasted really good, it wasn't they weren't good enough to justify that much work for such a small reward. So I gave up on them and uh, neglected them, and they eventually died out from neglect because they're growing in a dense, uh, brome grass sod, which is very competitive against, uh, trees and shrubs. Uh, but some big advances in honeyberry breeding were done by, a uh, Dr. Maxine Thompson from Oregon state and, uh, Bob Bors from the university of Saskatchewan. And now they have, there, there are, uh, honey honey berry berries that are about the size of the end joint on your thumb instead of the size of a grain of rice mm-hmm. and they taste even better than the mm-hmm. than the old ones um, in fact they're, they're varieties that are available now that produce berries that are twice the size of what was considered a large size berry five years ago and they're absolutely game-changing varieties and uh, so, and, and I like to the taste them. They taste like a cross between a blueberry and a black raspberry. And now that they're productive enough to be worth it, I'm, I'm experimenting with them. Um, I'm not ready to de- definitively say these are going to uh, be a, a good crop, but uh, when customers, I, I've let some customers do some u pick on them and uh, they preferred them over blueberries, raspberries, red currents uh, uh, they they were very excited about them anyway so I think I think they will be
0: oh wow okay nice
1: I think they will be very popular but it remains to be seen
0: very interesting we'll have to follow that and to see how 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 that evolves um, I wanted to ask you maybe just to finish off on something quite technical and agronomical because I know that you have a lot of experience with with this and um and you're very knowledgeable about, about this subject that's why I, what i what i perceived from the talk that we that i saw um that i mentioned earlier um how do you manage the grass not how do you manage it but more like how do you what grass do you choose to grow in between your trees and for what reason
1: well that's actually a very good question because uh Some grasses are very incompatible with trees. Uh, For example, um, a smooth brome grass uh, is extremely competitive against trees. And and when I'm giving people recommendations, I I tell them, uh, don't allow brome grass to grow within 100 feet of where you want to grow trees. Because the the root system of brome grass Mm -hmm. can go underneath a highway and come up on the other side. And and they will kill trees. Um, But brome grass is not tolerant of close, frequent mowing. Uh, So in a case where trees are planted in brome grass, you can get rid of the brome just by mowing it very close and very frequently. And it will eventually be replaced by another species of grass that's tolerant of close, frequent mowing, such as uh, bluegrass. Uh, and bluegrass is compatible with trees. But uh, if I'm starting with a bare field, I, I have a very specific recommendation for a ground cover, but but it's very local, and it might, it might not work a few hundred miles away, but uh, I recommend a mix of turf-type perennial ryegrass, uh, a creeping red fescue, or some other fine-leaf fescue, and then Dutch white clover, which makes a a very low ground cover that doesn't need much mowing and uh, is very compatible with mm-hmm. trees. Um, but it's, it works re- very well in the upper Midwest, but it might not work elsewhere. So
0: naturally, yeah, naturally needs to be adapted.
1: Yeah, I can't make recommendations for other parts of the world uh, as far as ground cover, except you want something mm. that's very low and not competitive against
0: tree roots. So they need to have a a lighter root system and also the mowing, right? The mowing will reduce the density and the length of the root system of the different grasses and legumes, right?
1: Yes. And and it will also cause a shift in the species present. If you mow close and frequently, then uh, the the taller species with a deeper root system will be uh, forced out and replaced by things with a, a shallower, less competitive root system.
0: When you say a close mow, could you give us some specifications? Um, How many inches are we talking about? um, uh,
1: If you can not let it get much over five or six inches tall, and when you mow it, mow it down to three inches or so, Uh, kind of like what you see in... Lawns, uh, that would be mm-hmm. ideal for the trees.
0: And then you just leave the, mo- the, the 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 clippings, the grass clippings, on the floor. You don't rake them out. You don't you just leave them there.
1: That's correct. They're they're adding to the soil carbon if they're just left. Uh, but but now we prefer to have sheep do that because uh, they're they're not only actually Uh, they're they're leaving fertilizer behind in addition to just organic matter.
0: Some people would say that um, a three species mix for a a ground cover is quite light and actually for a variety of reasons. There's actually interesting science about this that says that the higher diversity, we're completing more functions in the soil in terms of feeding specific microbiology. Um, we're, We're gaining more resilience as well. In, in the grass or in the in the ground cover, is that I, I'm curious to know your your experience and your opinion about this because one thing is what you read in studies, what people talk about, another thing is what somebody in their context has been observing for twenty five years yeah
1: uh, when i when I recommend a three species ground cover, I'm talking about getting trees established once they're established, then I can i I bring in more species. And, and also, just naturally, more okay. species will come in. Like if you, if I plant three, mm-hmm. the, the two grasses and the clover, um, almost immediately there are dandelions coming in, and, and other uh, species. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. during the the trees establishment period, which is going to be a minimum of three years and probably more, like five to seven years, I want to minimize. Oh competition from other species. But once the trees are established, they don't need my help anymore, at least the the species that I pick. And I can let as many species as want to come in and I can bring in species. Uh, In addition to the 75 species of uh, fruit, nut and berry plants, we also have somewhere around two dozen or so perennial vegetables planted uh, among and beneath the trees. Yeah, but we usually don't bring those in until the trees are established, though. So. But get, getting the trees established okay. is the top priority, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get the trees established, and then uh, let nature take its course mm-hmm. after that.
0: So I, I quite like how you are. Um, you are you, on one side. You are managing an extremely diverse agroecological system. Um, but before that, you are using uh, herbicide, Oust herbicide, which is a forestry herbicide, right? You're using that to get the trees established. Yes. Um, yes. The the first years, and so that's that's it's like a bit of a compromise that you are ready to make in order for proper tree establishment, getting your economic model running, and then letting, as you said, nature take its course. And clearly, you know, with that diversity and that management, plus the animal integration, you must be you know, you're, you're taking a lot of the, of the boxes of what we consider to be regenerative agriculture.
1: Yes. And th- there are alternatives to oust herbicide, for example. If for,
0: mm-hmm.
1: for people who are absolutely, uh, rabidly opposed to any kind of chemical usage, they can, you can use um, a combination of landscape fabric topped with a uh, coarse wood chip mulch. Um, and that's at least as effective as oust. Uh, near 100% effective at weed control. But it also adds $1,000 an acre to the cost of the tree planting. And I can plant a lot of extra Mm -hmm. trees for that $1,000. And I would rather do that than than, uh, stay chemical free. And then I only need the oust until the trees are established. After that, I don't need any more chemicals.
0: Mm -hmm. So how long do you need to have your trees clean at the base?
1: Um, It it depends on the species, um, but three to seven years, minimum of three years, maximum of seven
0: years. Chestnuts have higher needs than pawpaws, for example, of a clean base? Just understand. Um,
1: It it depends on where they're being grown. Uh, Pawpaws planted under the shade of chestnut trees, for example, can get by without any. Uh, weed control at all, okay. because the, the shade limits the other, other competition without limiting the pawpaws. Yeah. Uh, but, but species mm-hmm. that uh, uh, do require full sun do have to have some kind of weed control. You're just wasting your time uh, trying to grow these trees without weed control, wasting time and wasting money, wasting labor
0: we we just talked to a person that was um um that was advocating and we we've, we've heard this many times um in our in our podcast actually advocating for using wood chips because they do add an extra cost but they also add an extra um extra growth um to the tree which compensates for the cost because you have earlier production higher growth etc cetera, etc cetera. And I I do suspect that it depends on your soil conditions as well. If you have a more difficult soil, you may need to give it more organic matter amendments and organic matter, you know, to transform, to initially transform the soil. Uh, whereas if you have a very good soil, you may be able to put it off with, for example, with less investment in fertility. So I'm I'm, I'm interested, have, have you used wood chips as mulch, solely wood chips, huh? not uh, tarp and not uh, not any fabric in which it's on top, just just wood chips.
1: Um, no, when, whenever I, I I've used mountains of wood chips, uh, but before I started using Oust, I used uh, wood chips, but always with uh, landscape fabric. The wood chips by themselves are not effective okay. weed control. Uh, the the weeds will grow right through the wood chips, uh, so I always use landscape fabric. Also, the, the wood chips will rob nitrogen from the soil and actually slow the tree's growth, whereas uh, providing that barrier in between the wood chips and the soil surface will prevent the wood chips from uh, robbing the nitrogen from the soil and slowing the tree's growth. So the answer to your question is, no, I never use wood chips alone. Uh, I would not consider doing that.
0: Okay, fantastic. Tom, I'm going to... I'm going we're gonna stop here because uh, I don't want I want to be uh, not too disrespectful of your time <laughs> uh, and we've gone on for a good hour and 40 minutes now and so I think it's uh um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, uh, to talk to us and for a fantastic interview uh, it was really interesting you're welcome so we hope you enjoyed this interview. Thanks for making it this far. Again, if you want some more to check out more of our work, please um, look at our social media. We're starting to be a bit more active there on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also see our, get lots of information on our website. You can reach out to us very easily and, uh, and ask us any questions, give us some recommendations. It's always very welcome. And don't forget to consider donating and supporting us if that's something that you wish to do. So thank you so much.